0: Okay, we're going to be reading Hebrews 13, starting in verse 7, going to the end of the chapter. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, concerning, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with divers and strange, con- and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach for there we for there have we no continuing city but we seek one to come by him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name but to do good and to communicate forget not for with such sacrifices God is well pleased Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience, in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. I was drawn to, as we were singing a song here this morning, the second stanza of Come Thou Fount. Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place. Thou hast brought me to this place. This morning the Lord's brought you here to this place. And it's my hope and prayer that uh, in bringing you here, He's brought you here for good reason to hear and be attentive to His Word. Uh, We've come together to hear from God, to hear what He has to say from His Word this morning. And pray that his word would be a blessing uh, to us as we are attentive. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask if you would to join me. We're going to pray and then we're going to jump into Hebrews 13. Look at verses 7 through 17 this morning. Let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, we ask that you would fill us just now with the knowledge of your will. Help us to walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you in all things. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us with all might according to your mighty power. Remind us to run this race of faith with joy, even in the midst of suffering and hardships. In everything, Lord, I pray that we are a people who always render thanksgiving to you. For you are good and you do good. Glory and honor are due your name. For you have delivered us from the power of darkness, and conveyed us into the kingdom of your Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Your word is given this day that we might walk in it. And as we have received Christ as Lord, I pray, Father, that you would grant that we would walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as we've been taught. From your holy word. Remind us this day that in Christ we are anchored in someone better. Your word says that we are complete in Christ. Who is the head of all principality and power. Help us Lord to walk by faith. Trusting those words of the psalmist. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. We praise you for the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that you are a God who never fails. We pray and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. James Murphy, for eight years, served our country flying an F 15 fighter jet. And he says here, in an excerpt of his uh, book that he's written called Flawless Execution, let me tell you a little about flying a fighter. Today's military fighter aircraft is a sophisticated piece of machinery that is capable of speeds in excess of 1,200 miles per hour. This machine wraps around the pilot the sole human component. It has wings, a tail, a fuselage and engines that generate enough thrust to lift 20 or 30,000 pounds of dead weight straight up in the air without missing a beat. But that's not the purpose of this machine. The purpose of this machine is to deliver weapons against a hostile target. Bombs, missiles, bullets, we're equipped to use any of these. There's no graceful way to get into this jet, but these planes are tough. Pilots can walk on their wings, and I did, or grab the canopy rails with our full weight. When I at last slid down into my seat and settled in, I was in a snug cocoon of technology with not an inch of room to spare. This was my office, the cockpit. In front of me were 350 instruments and lights and displays and switches. And around me were the throttles and the control stick. Behind me were two big engines ready to kick out of a 12-foot blowtorch when I push the throttles into afterburner. On the ground, the F-15 is a thing of beauty. The jet is sleek and seems genetically tuned to work through the skies. The cockpit is a synapse, a ganglion, needing only a human to complete the node. How can you not admire the perfection of it all? The ergonomics, the sensible layout of the instrument panel, the interrelated functions of my hands, my feet, and all the instruments. But then again, I wasn't paid to sit in the cockpit and admire the engineering any more than you are paid to sit at your desk and admire the computer and file cabinets that surround you. I was paid to fly this thing. That jumped off the page at me as I'm reading this. I was paid to fly this thing. I was paid to let my fingers move over those toggles and switches, to listen to calls through my helmet, to watch for enemy missiles and fighters while my afterburners put a bone-crushing force on me that compressed my lungs and pushed blood from my head, sometimes blurring my vision so much that in a high-speed turn, the edge of the instrument panel turned gray. I was paid to ignore the shuddering vibration of the airframe as I yanked and banged the jet during a dogfight, flew a high-speed, low-level pass through a mountain valley or tucked into a close formation at night in bad weather with an air ref- fueling tanker I was paid to fly this thing he says in conclusion for me for the countless fighter pilots out there it defines our way of life what he calls flawless execution. We are always in pursuit of flawless execution. Pursuit is our way of life. Fighter pilots are not paid to merely sit in the cockpit. They don't get paid to dress the part and know the functionality of each button on the instrument panel. I was paid to fly this thing, he says. You know, and as I read the opening chapters of the book, I I sat to attention, realizing the depth and the degree to which these fighter pilots go to secure the target on each and every mission. They have a plan. They work the plan. They aim for flawless execution of the plan. They realize that with the myriad of contingencies, things can go wrong, and they will go wrong. The plan will most likely need adjusting. But here's the thing. They train for these contingencies, and they aim at flawless execution. The objective of the Christian life, friends, is it not to walk as Christ himself walked? Walking in the light as he is in the light. And yet I believe that we are on the ready to acknowledge our shortcomings. I believe some of us here would be quick to say, there's not a one of us who can execute the Christian life flawlessly. I believe we tend to use that line oftentimes to make excuses for how poorly we actually carry out the mission of our Lord given to us here on earth. We're called to be witnesses to Jesus with the power that he's given to us in the Holy Spirit. Instead of returning time and again to what we can't do, why not commit to the plan God's given us and execute it in the power of the Holy Spirit. As I thought about what I was reading and I thought about the Word and thought about our place and our role here in the body of Christ, it was oh that we planned and trained and approached the Christian life with the same fervency, the same intensity as an F-15 fighter pilot. They don't go about their job haphazardly, carelessly, half-heartedly. Hebrews 13, 7 through 17, it's a continuation from last week. Part two of some final words. We talked about that last week. These are closing words. These are final words. I believe the Lord is issuing a church-wide alert this morning. Following Jesus is much more than saying you're a Christian. It's much more than hanging out with the followers of Jesus. It's much more than weekly church attendance. Much more than acquiring knowledge of who God is... And being able to recite what Jesus has done to secure your salvation, as good as that is, to use Mr. Murphy's line, we get paid, in quotes, to fly this thing. There's something to be said here about competently flying in the Christian life, isn't there? I mean, think about a plane awaiting takeoff. Awaiting clearance on the runway. It's sitting there. And it's sitting there. And compare that plane sitting there to a plane that is taking off. A plane that is soaring. A plane that is flying. A plane, get this, novel idea. A plane doing what a plane is intended to do. Fly. Friends, what is the church intended to do? She too is called to lift off, to fly. To execute the plan Christ gave to his followers. What was the plan? Go make disciples of all the nations. Be witnesses to me. Here's my spirit. Go in my power. Go in my strength. Tell people about the saving grace available to them in Jesus Christ. These closing words that we have here in Hebrews 13, in many ways, are are sounding forth flying instructions for the church. See that you take off. Leave the ground Fly! But do so with an understanding of the mission. Know what's at stake and pursue the commander's flight instructions. You see, context, remember, context. It's always important to remember. We've been talking about it all the way through this year. Hopefully you have the context by now. But in the midst of pressures from within, in the Judaism circles and the persecution on the outside... What's the final debrief here before commissioning them unto the Lord before this letter closes? I think there's an important word here. It's the first word that's used in the the passage. Remember. Remember. It's important we remember things in this walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the first thing here in verse 7, he's calling them to remember their rulers. Remember your rulers. History teaches lessons. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, whose faith imitate, considering the outcome of their conduct. Here it leads me to believe that he's pointing them to some people who in their past have spoken the word into their life, Perhaps he's speaking of people who have died. Perhaps even people who have been martyred for their faith. Some people who have taught them, spoken the word of God to them. And the call here is to remember their faith. Remember the extent to which they were willing to go to show you what it is to walk by faith. And to walk as Christ himself would walk. Remember, these are people, some of these people were watching, some of these people were a little unsure about following this Messiah. They like things over here because they kind of knew how things operated over here in this circle. And the call has been to follow a new way, a mediator in Christ, one who is bringing in a new covenant, different from the old covenant. Remember your rulers, faithful men and women. Church, you can probably in your own life think about men and women in your lives who have modeled Christ. Men and women in your life who have spoken the word of God to you. Is there someone that you can think of in your life? who has been a teacher, who has been someone who's impressed upon you the word of God, someone whose life you can look at and you can see they are diligently pursuing Christ with their life. The call here in the text is to remember those folks who've spoken the word to imitate their faith, considering the the, the complete work, if you will, of their life. What's their life saying? What's your life saying? He moves on from verse 7. Remember your rulers to perhaps the most familiar verse in the whole book of Hebrews Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, when you read this, it really on the surface comes across as a disjointed verse, doesn't it? It's like, on a first read, maybe it doesn't necessarily seem to fit here. But I want to help you understand it does fit. In many ways it fits. It fits with verse 7 and I believe it fits with verse 9. Not only is there a call here to remember your rulers, but I think here in verse eight, there's a call to remember your ruler, Jesus Christ. Your ultimate authority. Remember Jesus, the ultimate example. He's the someone better that we've been talking about this whole year. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever. You know, we live in a world that is all about change. Even as I stand here to talk, there are things changing. Technology is changing. You've, you've probably read, you've probably seen. Some of you who are in that, that realm, you know, if you're in the software business, you know software is always changing. Things are changing. I was reading something not too long ago that said that, that your, your degree that you graduated with The information that you've accumulated within the time span of about five years, you lose a large percentage of what information you have accumulated. And the whole point was that we need to be constant learners. We need to be constantly ongoing students because of the change that's happening in our world all around us. All kinds of change. we're called to adapt to the change that's happening. But you know, I read verse 8 and what a wonderful what a wonderful verse to read. In the midst of all the change, I read Jesus Christ is the same. He's the same. All kinds of stuff changing. You know, in in some ways, um, uh, one of the writers in in, in a particular book just comes to mind. He refers to everyone today as we are perpetual newbies. In other words, we're always learning because of the change that's always taking place. But I read verse 8 and I see that Jesus Christ is the same. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday. Today. And he's the same forever. I want you to consider that statement for just a moment. Jesus is the same forever. He's the everlasting one. And as the mediator of the new covenant, the writer is saying, Jesus is the one you can truly trust. Listen, he is both our sacrifice and our ruler. Think about that for just a moment. Our sacrifice and our ruler. Old Testament law required the people to bring sacrifices, right? The nature of a sacrifice was that the animal had to die. Death was required for sacrifice. Blood was a necessity. Jesus is the only sacrifice who sufficiently atoned for your sin. He's the only sacrifice who was raised from the dead. The only sacrifice to go on and reign and rule. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changed think about the implications of a ruler who is always the same, consistent across the board. You know, many rulers today are changing, fickle, changing. But this one that we're reading about in verse eight, the one the writer is calling the listener to grab a hold of, to listen to, to follow. No changing of the guard for this ruler. From the beginning, he's been on the throne. He's been with the Father. To follow Jesus is to follow one who's the same. He's not going to change anytime soon. He's not going to be replaced. He's not going anywhere. The world around us changes and fluctuates, but the call here is to remember Jesus is the same. He's constant. He's dependable. He's steadfast. He's fully able and trustworthy always. Isn't that good news? In a world, in a sea of change, we have one who is a solid rock not changing. Your circumstances are going to change. And some of us here, if not all of us, have experienced this in our lives. The ups and downs. But listen, here's the wonderful hope and good news we have. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, Today and forever. Forever. Remember your rulers. Remember your ruler. Verse 9. Remember grace. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace. There it is. It's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Don't be carried away. That's the message. You know, I think of a rushing river. You picture a rushing river, the current flowing rapidly downstream. A boat in such a current is going to be carried away. It's going to be moved. I was leaving the parking lot of the grocery store Yesterday, and as we were driving by, leaving the parking lot, I noticed this cart was being moved. And it was, it was being moved, and it was going to be going, it was going right at a, a parked car. But you know how windy it was yesterday. And this cart was being moved. It was being carried along. Praise God, there happened to be a guy nearby who saw it, and he took off running. And he caught it before it hit the parked car. Praise God, the guy saw it, and he took action. He was there, but he got moved. It was being carried along. The Hebrew writer is exhorting the church to remain strong in the faith, to stand upon the truth. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Know what this book says and walk in the light. Are you being carried away by various teachings and strange doctrines? Really, you know, that first sentence of verse 9 could preach in and of itself. We have a whole message on that one, couldn't we? Are you being carried about today? Hey, listen, if you haven't noticed, there are lots of strange teachings circulating around today. Lots of strange teachings have filtered into the church of Jesus Christ. Are you standing firm in the faith or being carried downstream with the next new spiritual fad that comes on the scene? Listen, Jesus is the same. What he said in his word is true back in Genesis, just like it's true in Revelation. See, this is the benefit and the value of knowing that Jesus is the same. His word is always the same. His word doesn't change. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth yesterday. It's the truth today. It'll be the truth forever. Don't get carried away by strange doctrines. Doctrine is a fancy word, young people, for teaching. Don't get carried away by strange teachings. Paul says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, 14 and 15, he says, we should no longer be children. Notice he says children. You're acting like children, he says, if you are being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. In other words, Paul is saying, you are acting very immaturely. If you're being led by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, instead of operating that way, Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. The head is Christ, right? Paul says to the church at Colossae in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, Beware... Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Paul says, You are complete in Christ. Don't go chasing after these strange doctrines. They're not leading you in the truth. For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods. Listen, Jesus Christ has brought salvation by grace through faith. Isn't that what the Bible says? We are saved by grace through faith. That not of our own, lest any of us should what boast. It's His plan. It's His work. Grace. A heart that is established by grace is called to continue living by grace. The external religion, the the, the trappings associated with Judaism, the rituals. Don't be carried away thinking this is the way to live. Don't think that you can operate this way. When Jesus has pioneered a new way, provided a new covenant, granted access by way of the cross. He validated his work through the empty tomb. You are complete in Christ. His grace is sufficient. We sing that song. His grace is sufficient. No foods, no more animal sacrifices necessary. Have a heart established by grace. God's riches, what is grace? We've heard it said, God's riches at Christ's expense. When all that we deserved was what? A curse. That's what we deserved. He's poured out his riches by grace. And none of this is deserved. We cannot attain to right standing in God's eyes through our hard work, through religious exercises or good deeds. We stand before God, blameless, only through the accomplished, finished work of the spotless Lamb of God, His Son, Jesus Christ. It's grace that pardons and cleanses within, the words of the hymn, right? This grace poured out is greater than all my sins. Look at the next verse. We have an altar. I love the language he uses here in this passage because he's, he's, listen, I know for most of us in here, we don't fully grasp and understand Levitical economy, sacrificial terminology from the Old Testament. We don't, by and large, get it. But I want you to understand, the writer is writing, moved by the Spirit, he's connecting with his audience. Because his audience in the first century would have understood this terminology. Okay? So follow as best you can with this. He is actually doing something that's even well taught today in many circles. To speak with with the understanding of trying to connect with your audience. The writer moved by the Spirit is doing this. I just want to let you know, he's doing it. You may not fully understand it today because we don't operate in that system today, but the writer is connecting here. He says, we have an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Another word for that word right, have no right, they have no authority. They have no authority to eat from this particular altar. I believe the word here, the call here is to remember your authority in Christ. Remember your authority. Remember your rulers. Remember your ultimate ruler. Remember grace. Remember your authority. These are closing words from the Lord to his church in the midst of internal pressures and external persecution. Remember what's going on. Remember what's at stake. And starting here in verse 10, the text is drawing a distinction between those who follow Jesus and those who desire to continue in the sacrificial system. The word of God is teaching us that in Christ, we have certain rights. We have certain authority granted. We've been given a delegated authority in Christ. We have an altar. We, those of us who are in Christ, we have an altar from which those who serve at the altar have no right to eat whether priest or whether one associated with God's house, those adhering to the Old Testament way of sacrifices and offerings have no, essentially have no affiliate rights with Christ. No title or religious practice brings entitlement to participation in the things of Christ. A line is being drawn here. A stake in the sand is being proclaimed. Following Jesus and ministering in the Old Testament way, you can't do both. Nor is there any need any longer to sacrifice animals. The once for all sacrifice has completely paid the price for our sins. You see, in Christ, we've been granted a storehouse of privileges. Authority has been given to us through Christ. If you have any doubt about the richness that's been afforded to you in Christ, read Ephesians 1 today, will you? And read about the the, the wonderful riches available to you in Christ. Christ Jesus. We're partakers of his divine inheritance. We've been given a new name. We're called new creations in Christ. These are closing words of instructions for the church to remember to fly. It's important we know who we are. Has the church become like the plane that's radioed for takeoff and yet we sit on the runway, idling away, content with being on the tarmac? We're we're content just being in the plane. Has the church forgotten the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities, mind you, the responsibilities that she has in Christ? Look at 11 and 12, connected to 10. For the bodies of those animals, again, sacrificial language here, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned, here's here's a key phrase, outside the camp. Outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. I think the writer here is calling us to remember your path. Remember your path. He wants us to remember where it is we need to be going. Remember where it is we ought to be walking. Remember, our authority in Christ is explained from the Levitical sacrificial system here. And really, this is a picture of the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, you can read all about it. The day of atonement, the bodies of the sacrificial animals, they're taken outside the camp and they're burned. Jesus, who is the reality of the day of atonement, shadow. That's what the day of atonement was pointing toward the reality in Christ. Jesus gives of his life that the text says that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. And what did he do? The text says he suffered outside the gate. He was not crucified in the temple proper nor was he crucified in the city but he was taken outside the gate of the city. He too went outside the camp and suffered in his body. West says in his commentary that in the Old Testament, outside the camp, describes a realm that's marked by shame. And listen, that fits in so well. If you just flip the page backward to chapter 12 in Hebrews Because that familiar line, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, he suffered outside the gate, outside the camp. And what says this was a realm that was marked by shame. It was the place where carcasses were disposed of, where criminals were executed. Outside the camp. Numbers 15, you might remember the story of the man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Remember that story? The Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him with stones where? Outside the camp. It was also a place where God spoke with his people. I found this interesting. He spoke with his people Due to their rebellion. You remember that incident in chapter 32 of Exodus where a golden calf just happened to pop forth out of the fire? I love the phrase and terminology of that passage. Well, the very next chapter, Exodus 33, verse 7, tells us that Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. You familiar with the Tabernacle of Meeting? It came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. I want you to keep all that in mind as we look at Hebrews 13, verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Listen, we need to understand The path of Christ led to a cross, bearing his reproach. We're to go forth to him outside the camp. I was reminded in chapter 11, remember reading about Moses? Pick it up in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Listen to 26 esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? The next part of the verse tells us, for he looked to the reward. That's how. Most of us, how does... How does one willingly go forth to Jesus to the one who bore reproach outside the camp? If Christ suffered outside the camp and we're called to go forth to him outside the camp, why would anyone desire to suffer reproach? What's the purpose? What's the benefit of going where they're suffering? What's the catalyst to get out of the camp? Verse 14 of our text tells us it's the same reason Moses bore reproach. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no continuing city. But we seek the one to come. Here on earth we have no continuing city. We just read at the end of chapter 12, Since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. This is the importance of establishing a heart by grace. There are many things going to be removed. And there are a select few things that are going to remain We are recipients in Christ of a kingdom that cannot, will not be shaken. Ties into this Jesus that we serve, who's the same yesterday, today, forever. We go forth to him knowing what awaits. We are citizens of a heavenly country, are we not? We've been called out of the camp to go to him, to meet with him there, to bear his reproach. And now it may not all sound great, pleasant, flowery in the short term. But we're called here to remember our eternal destination. We're called to think of things above, to set our mind on things above, not things here on earth. Are we not? Paul says in Colossians 3. This world is not our home, nor should we treat it as such. The call is not toward comfort, but to tread the path of our pioneer and savior, Jesus Christ. That's the call. That's part of the closing words. That's part of our understanding if we're to fly as church. Take off. The text in verse 14 assumes two things. says we have no continuing city. Here we have no continuing city. It assumes the world we live in is fading away. It's not going to continue. The world and the lust of it are passing away, John says. Chapter 2, 1 John. Another assumption in verse 14 is that we are journeying toward our heavenly home. That we're in the process of moving in to our heavenly home. Think about, I know we had someone who's recently moved. Someone else is planning and prepping that possibility of moving. Most, if not all of us in here, have moved. Once, twice, or more. And you know that there are preparations for moving. You don't just say, tomorrow we're going to move. Well, that would be silly. You make preparations. You make plans to move. Why is it when we know that this world is not our home? Why is it and how is it that we can live our lives for such a long period of time? Not making any preparations for moving into our home yet to come. Listen, there's work to be done. There's not a one of us in here that know the number of days he's given to us on this earth. He's ordained all of them, but he hasn't given any of us a sneak peek into how many we got left. So guess what we need to be doing? We need to be planning and preparing for that home right now. And I believe the writer is calling the church in the first century, to that very thing. It's hard. It's difficult. Life may not be what you like it to be right now, but I'm telling you to fly as a church. Here's what needs to happen. You need to begin planning. You need to begin preparing for your home that's yet to come. Don't wander aimlessly through this life, waiting for that day. Actively seek out our eternal home. Look at 15 and 16. We're about done. Hang in there. Follow the text. Continue to stay focused on what the Lord would want to teach you here this morning. Therefore, there's a connection here. Therefore, by Him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Something else I think he wants us to remember as he closes is to remember your sacrifice. Oh, it's a different kind of sacrifice for sure. But he wants us to remember in Christ there is much sacrifice to be given. Again, the language is connected to their former Old Testament way of living. The text is exhorting the church to completely break free from the Old Covenant way of operating and walk in the steps of the Messiah, the mediator of this new covenant. In doing so, notice the call in 15 and 16 is not to completely abandon the idea of sacrifice. That had been the way of life for the Jew, offering sacrifices. Instead of throwing out the whole idea of sacrifice, the text is advocating the church to remember the distinctive sacrifices expected of one following Jesus. And there are three that he gives in the text. And hopefully your eyes have already seen them in the pages of Scripture. If not, I'll help point them out. Here's the first one. Verse 15. A sacrifice of praise to God. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, that is, it's kind of giving us, a it's like a, A little parenthetical, giving us further definition of what this is. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And you know, if time uh, allowed, we could just essentially have a field day in the book of Psalms with this one, couldn't we? Praise. Are there not numerous accounts in the Psalms of the psalmist praising God? Let me give you just a glimpse in Psalm 145, verses 2 through 4. 10 and 21 every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever listen that's an interesting phrase because we serve a a Lord who is the same yesterday today and forever we're going to have opportunity and we ought to be right now praising this God but the praise doesn't stop here we're going to keep on praising him the psalmist seemed to have an understanding of that day yet to come Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. One generation shall praise your works to another. Dads and moms, are we doing this? Are we praising what God has done in the midst of our children so that they can see? So that they too, as they grow, they'll be able to pass along the praise of their great God to their children. This is to be a generational thing. We pass this along. All your works shall praise you. All your works shall praise you. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen? Everything has breath. How many of you have breath? How many of you are breathing this morning? Anybody breathing? Okay, a few of you are breathing. Some of you aren't. We all ought to be praising God. We're to be offering Him a continual sacrifice of praise. Continual. Ongoing. I love the end of that psalm. It says, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. My mouth shall speak. My mouth shall speak. Listen, when's the last time out of your lips you've spoken praise to God for what He's done in your life? I'm not talking about an asylum prayer. I'm talking when you voiced it, when you voiced it out loud. Praise to God for what He's done in your life. That's what we're called to. Part of the church, being in Christ. This is what we're called to. And listen, this is deemed a sacrifice. A sacrifice. Colossians 3, 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what we're to be about. This is what the Hebrew writer's talking about. Praise to God, fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Are we a thankful people? Do we remember from where we've come? 1 Peter 2.9 says we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? For what purpose? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That you may proclaim the praises. That's who we are. We're to proclaim praises of our God because he's brought us out of darkness and he's brought us into that marvelous light. Let us continually Offer the sacrifice of praise to God, giving thanks to Him through our lips. But notice verse 16, notice this, don't miss this. A continual sacrifice of praise isn't all. Verse 16 gives us two other sacrifices that God is well pleased with. Do not forget to do good and to share. Do good and to share. These are both deemed sacrifices. Praise to God from our lips is a sacrifice. Doing good, sharing. We talked about hospitality last week. That's that's one way we share. We share of our food. We share of our home. We share our lives. Doing good. James talks about doing good. You see a brother in need. And you send him away and wish him well, but you don't do anything to help him. The Bible calls us in First John says that we are to love not just in word or deed, but in, or excuse me, not just in word, but in deed, in action, right? See a brother in need. Jesus shares the parable and says that as much as you've done for the least of these, when you've clothed, when you've housed, when you've taken in one, when you've provided for one, you've sheltered for one who's in need, That's good. You've served me, Jesus says. But I believe in the society we live in today, this is truly a sacrifice because we live in a self-serving culture. We tend to think about me, 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 how I can serve and please me. And so truly, this is a sacrifice. It's getting outside of thinking about me, thinking about just my family, and how we might serve someone else who's in need. Thinking of the interests of others, Paul says to the Church of Philippi. praising God with our lips, giving thanks to His name, doing good, sharing with others. These are the three that are specifically recorded right here. Sacrifices, pleasing to God. I was also reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Listen, I believe in many ways that's the key to those other three that we're reading about in Hebrews. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Well, the discussion of sacrifice leads to our final verse, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now listen, a whole message could be preached on this one verse again. There are several of these verses that we could just Blow out and make entire messages on. Remember your place. Not only remember your sacrifices, but remember your place and your place in particular in Christ's church. You were bought with a price, you're not your own. God's placed you in His family and has planted you within the context of the body of Christ. Following the Messiah is not a solo mission but a collaborative, ongoing mission. We follow Christ together. We're intended to walk together. And the discussion of sacrifice segues well right here into verse 17. Instructions are given to the rulers on one hand and to the flock on the other hand. Both are called to sacrifice for the Lord's sake in the body of Christ. The flock is instructed to obey and be submissive. The rulers are charged with watching out for souls as as ones who are going to give account. That's why I believe James says in chapter 3, at the beginning of 3, that those who teach are going to be held to stricter judgment. There's a high responsibility here of seeing that God's word goes forth. Not strange doctrines, but healthy, sound doctrines. The truth of God's word goes forth. That's what we're held accountable for. Seeing that the people hear this word. Hear the truth of Jesus Christ. The interaction of rulers and flock ought to be respectful, mutually encouraging, working together to glorify the Lord. Serving the Lord and the body of Christ is a sacrifice. It involves lives that are committed to one another, committed to the Lord Jesus, committed to the mission laid out in His Word. I was reminded of 1 John 3 16. It says, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives. For the brethren. Want to fly as a church? It's part and parcel of what it is to be a part of the church. We lay down our lives for the brethren because he laid down his life for us. We love because he first loved us. We know what love is because of Christ and what Christ did at the cross for us. The example, the pattern... Is it a sacrifice? Absolutely. A close. December 29th, 1972. 1972, that was a good year. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was inbound to Miami International Airport. The normal cockpit crew of three pilots was flying the plane. It was wintertime, a crystal clear night. Weather was not a factor. As the first officer rolls L ten eleven out on a ten mile final approach into Miami International. He looks to the left and says to the captain, "Captain, let's put the landing gear down." The captain looks at the co-pilot and says, "Roger." He reaches up and grabs the gear handle and puts it in the down position. They look for three lights to illuminate on the forward instrument panel, indicating that the right main, the left main, and the nose wheel gear are down and locked and in a safe position to land. However, on this night, only two out of the three green lights illuminate the right main and the left main, but not the nose wheel light. So the captain says, we have an emergency procedure checklist for this. Let's get it out and read it. The emergency checklist directs the crew to raise the handle up and down to recycle the gear, but again, they only get two green lights. And it goes on, it gives us the audio transcript of the conversation that took place between those at the Miami International Airport and the pilots in the cockpit. And some of the conversation that takes place, I won't, I won't read the entirety of it here, but some of the conversation, in fact, a large bulk of the conversation between the three pilots and the plane. And in fact, all three of the pilots are trying to figure out why this third light's not working. And they're trying to fix a bulb. They're trying to fix this. They're trying to figure out why this third light's not coming on. At the end of the conversation, the writer continues and says, At this point, our first officer, our flying pilot, decides to come up for air and starts flying again. Have you noticed that no one was talking about actually flying this large, complex jumbo jet? Three pilots, and they're all leaning forward, bent down to work on a light bulb. Well, the plane was in trouble, but no one knew it. Someone bumped the control yoke, the wheel, and disengaged the autopilot, and the jet had been in slow descent. Not that they knew it, they had a light bulb to worry about. The sky was ink black. The water in Everglades below were also black. No reference to a horizon. So what does this pilot see? 100 feet on the altimeter. What does he expect to see? 2,000 feet. He has 12 seconds to react. But he's so task saturated along with his other two crew members that his pilot instincts are long gone. And in 12 seconds... He and 99 people aboard that night die. Here are the last words recorded. Co-pilot, hey, we lost some of the altitude here. Captain, what? Co-pilot, we're still at 2,000, right? Captain, hey, what's happening here? And then the plane slams into the Everglades. Three pilots aboard Flight 401 were focused intently on just one thing. They were fixed on seeing that a light bulb got repaired before landing. And yet, in the midst of the light bulb conversation, no one seemed to notice that the airplane was losing altitude quickly. And by the time it registered that there was an altitude problem, it was too late. Plane crashed. I go back to where we begin. He says I get paid to fly this thing. Listen, the Church of Jesus Christ is called to carry out the flight instructions of our Lord. He's given us specific tasks and functions and has gifted each one of us with the power to operate his commands. He's called his church to fly, to soar, to get off the runway. And I close with the example of flight 401 for this reason. The church can be doing a whole lot of things, some of them extremely well. The church might even be stuck on doing one thing really well to the detriment of other things needing attention. Whatever the case may be, if the church stops being the church, if we stop looking to this word, if we stop being what God said the church is to be, we too may very well be in for a crash. Jesus issues warnings. Don't be lukewarm. Don't profess that you have a name, but you're really dead. Read Revelation 2 and 3. That's where I got that. Didn't make that up. Return to your first love. Final words from our Lord for His church. Sobering words, absolutely necessary words for us to hear. Let's be sure as a church we are focused and intent upon the things that the church is supposed to be about. Let's not get caught up in the peripheries. We get caught up in the peripheries and we find ourselves in the Everglades. Many words here summed up by one. The beginning word is remember. Remember, church. Remember all of what Christ has done. Remember those who have gone before you, those rulers. Remember your ultimate ruler. Remember grace. Remember the rights and authorities you have in Christ. Remember what it is to go to him outside the camp. And I love that because he is, this day, outside the camp. He's available to all. He's not inside some holy circle. He's made himself available to all. This Christ that we serve, let's be sure as a church, that we're listening to his instructions, that we're together desiring to fly let's get off the runway and let's fly for his glory for his namesake amen let's do that together let's pray father thank you for this word this directive that you've given father I pray we would not spend our days and our time worrying about things that in comparison to the bigger picture are very menial menial not as significant, not as important kind of things. Help us to remember our place in your church. You've given to each one of us gifts, talents, abilities, not for our own benefit, but for the edification of the parts of the body, for your glory, for your honor. May we remember that you even today have required certain sacrifices, praise, giving thanks with our lips. Help us to be very bold in speaking truth to one another. The name of Christ. I pray that we would see the significance of doing good and sharing with one another. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in this race of faith. To continue looking unto Jesus. Thinking much of Jesus. Listening always to what your son has spoken. Help us to be intent on carrying out your instructions, Lord. Help us to remember that we are here to fly. You've granted to us these bodies. We're to steward them well. We're to set our minds on things above. We're to be committed and loyal followers of Jesus Christ. You've told us who we are. You've called us. You've given us your mission. I pray, Father, that we would not go about that half-heartedly, but we would approach it with great discipline, great diligence, a desire to exalt your holy name. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.